What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Unfortunately, in, in every company, you make mistakes. In most companies, you don't hear about them. At Cloudflare, we incessantly blog about them and tell people say, okay, we got it. You made a mistake. Shut up now. But I think if you are in a business where trust is paramount, transparency and, and radical transparency is the best way and, and, and maybe the only way that you can earn that. You're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Today's episode Radical Transparency. One of the biggest topics of this week has been the security of our electoral process. And this week, I spoke with one of the entrepreneurs on the front lines of internet security, Matthew Prince of Cloudflare. Cloudflare is a $290 million business security company that helps websites balance their loads to run faster and helps protect sites against an array of hacks, filter out malware, and analyze their traffic. It has 1,500 employees around the world and works to keep secure and speed up sites by companies like IBM, Mars, Thomson Reuters, and Zendesk. And importantly, this year, it also works with local governments to protect information about voting, registration, and the election. And Prince has some fascinating thoughts about what's gone on this year in particular. We also spoke about his radical choice to speak openly about some of the company's toughest moments, even while they are unfolding. And the scandal that almost crushed his company actually led to his thinking around transparency. But before Cloudflare was protecting some 25 million internet properties around the world, it was inspired by an idea that Matthew had when trying to put together a presentation for a group of founders that Y Combinator founder Paul Graham had arranged. So I went to a young engineer who was on our team, a guy named Lee Holloway, and uh, I said, do you think we could build a system to track how spammers and other bad guys operate online, how they steal email addresses and hack into systems? And we sort of brainstormed for a little bit and we ended up coming up with something that we called Project Honeypot. And the entire idea was, could we get data that I could then give a talk at Paul's, at Paul's conference? And we built it, we got a couple hundred people to sign up for it. Um, we gathered this really cool data on like how spammers operated. Uh, and I gave the talk and then we basically put it in the corner and forgot about it. And time passed and I, uh, over you know, the next, uh, this was 2004, and so um, about four years later, I decided to go to business school and take a sabbatical um, from the company. And, and, and meanwhile, you know, every day, hundreds of new people were signing up for Project Honeypot. And while I was in business school, I met a woman named Michelle Zaplin, and Michelle, you know, was just a real kind of compliment to me. All the things that that um, you know I was bad at, she was good at, and and and, and I I was good at things that she wasn't as as good at. And, um, and so, you know, we, I, I kept trying to pitch her throughout all of business school that we should start a company. And, you know, she, it was, it was, it was sort of 2008, 2009, and she had had a, an internship at, at Google between her first and second year of business school. 
and thought she was going to go back there. But when the when the economic crisis hit, um, Google pulled all their intern offers, and um, and everyone was sort of scrambling um, to do something. And so she and I had taken a, a school trip out to Silicon Valley. And I remember we were sitting in a plug and play, um, which is an incubator down in uh, Sunnyvale. And they, we were just hearing, you know, from every VC that we would talk to, they were like, VC is dead and entrepreneurship is dead and the market's dried up and you're not, you're not going to be able to do anything. And yet we we'd then hear from all these, these startups that were, you know, raising money and, and starting businesses. And, you know, when you, when you meet people early in their startup journey, they don't seem totally polished. And I think Michelle kind of came out of that and said, you know, pulled me out of the hall after one of the meetings. And she said, well, if those guys can start a company, then, then we can too. And I was like, yeah, that's what I've been saying. And, um, and she said, okay, let's, let's run through those ideas again. And, uh, and one of the ideas that, that I had proposed was, could we take the data from Project Honeypot and build a next generation security service? And she, that clicked with her you know, immediately. And so it, it started out as a school project. And I don't think either of us really thought it was gonna really turn into a company necessarily. Um, but you know, the next thing you know, Michelle, Lee, the original Project Honeypot engineer, and I were out in out in California and um, and hiring people and, and building what today has turned into a you know a fairly fairly um, sizable organization. Yeah, it certainly is sizable now. Uh, it's fascinating that even though Paul Graham didn't have to give you six thousand dollars to uh, to work on your company for the summer, it still seemed to inspire it. Um, you say that you and Michelle um, balanced each other out. What what were you bad at that she was good at? And and tell me how, as three co-founders, y'all balanced each other out. Um, so so the company that I started before Cloudflare was was called Unspam Technologies, and my two other co-founders, um, we chose to be co-founders largely because we had been, uh, we had our lockers next to each other in junior high school. And we were all some version of kind of wonky geeks, right? So we, we, we all knew a little bit about technology. We all knew a little bit about the law and we were sort of, you know, we were some combination of that. And, and, you know, one person skewed a little bit more to the law and a little bit less away, away more away from technology and the other person skewed a little bit more to technology and away from the law. But, but basically we were all, you know, three white guys that had grown up in the same town and, and, and saw the world in, in very similar ways. And it was a disaster. Um, we fought, like cats and dogs, um, we went from being some, you know, some of my closest friends to by the end not speaking to each other. We've all kind of reconciled since, but it was really, really hard. And I think the core issue there was that since we all were kind of the same, it was there was just this constant fight over you know who was in charge of what and who ultimately had say on on whatever uh, we were we were doing, and it was. And it wasn't fun. Uh, it was it was tough. And so when I was when I was in business school and I was reflecting on you know I, I got some time to take a, a little bit of a, a break from that and and reflect on you know what I would do differently. You know I, I said I, I think it's really important that you have a diverse founding team with with different perspectives, different backgrounds. And so when I when I looked at myself and I said what am I good at and what am I not so good at? Um, you know, I, I, I'm I'm a pretty good kind of product manager. I'm a pretty good um, marketer in in certain ways. Like um, I, I understand how the media works and 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 those sorts of things. I'm a, I'm a pretty good storyteller and writer, and and I'm a decent salesperson. Um, and so those were things I was good at. I am terrible at 
process. I'm terrible at making sure the bills get paid. I'm terrible at, you know, coming up with how you actually hire people. I'm terrible at, you know, what is much more systematic uh, marketing. And while I'm an okay engineer, I'm, 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 I'm not really like, I, I'm not, I'm not that I, I, I can kind of pretend to be an engineer, but I, I really don't understand how to write really sophisticated um, technology. And so I was, I was really looking for people who could balance out my strengths. And Michelle, Michelle was not a, you know, internet technology person. And, and she was really concerned about that um, starting out where she said, you know, I just don't know a ton about this space. And I said, you know, Michelle, give it six months and you'll be one of the leading experts in the world. Um, but what you really do know is how can, you know, she was a, she was a six Sigma black belt, literally. Um, she, she's, she's very process oriented. Um, she makes sure that trains run on time and the bills get paid on time. And, um, and she really balanced out kind of my, she was sort of the order Muppet to my, to my chaos Muppet. And, and then Lee was, you know, this, this just, total technical genius and and really didn't want to be involved in the sales or marketing or you know administrative or, or business side of the business but wanted to really focus on just building uh incredible technology and that i think actually turns out to be a pretty terrific founding team um because you know i think the way michelle would describe it is that when you start a business there are so many problems that you need to solve that you want people that have different skill sets, um, but you want at least enough overlap between their skill sets that they can communicate. And but you don't want too much that they that they'll fight over it. And so I think she would describe it almost like a Venn diagram, where you want a little bit of each of the circles to overlap, but largely to cover as much surface area as possible. And you know, today we're in a fortunate position where um, you know a lot of entrepreneurs come to us and ask for advice, and and one of the first questions that they ask is, you know, how did you and Michelle and Lee split up responsibilities? Because my co-founder and I are having a hard time doing that. And I, I'm usually nice enough to not, to not say it, but the minute someone says that to me, my, my first thought is you've got the wrong co-founder because for us, it was just totally obvious. What were the things that were, um, you know, Michelle's responsibility, what were the things that were my responsibility and what were the things that were Lee's responsibility? And, uh, and I think as a result, um, you know, I, we, we, we have, We've been a very stable, uh, low drama, get stuff done, um, play to our strengths team. And, and I think that's that served us very well. So how did you guys then, um, once you had a, a product and a, and a business plan, how did you find your first customers? You know, so one of the some you know unfair advantages that we had was we had all the Project Honeypot users. And so this was this open source project that people could sign up to track bad guys online. And the number one request from that community was, it's great that you're tracking it. Could you help me stop it? And so when we, we were still in business school, one of the things that we did was we actually uh, sent a survey out to, you know, a thousand, um, there, were, there were tens of thousands of Project Honeypot users and we, we picked a thousand of them and sent a, sent a survey out. And I remember we were, we were very sort of diligent business students. And so, you know, we had a whole bunch of questions that were sort of like on a scale of one to 10, you know, what do you think of this and and that and 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 those sorts of things. And we thought that was going to be what was valuable. And I remember we'd bought um we bought a, a package to do surveys through SurveyMonkey. And whatever package we had, we could send it to I think a thousand people and we could send them 10 questions. And we could only come up 
with eight of these kind of on a scale of one to 10 questions. And, but we had, we'd paid for 10. So we thought we might as well, you know, come up with, with two more. And so we, I think we put in, you know, two things that were something like, you know, how do web spammers make you feel? And it was just a free response. And then, and the other one was, was something along, along the same lines, like, you know, what, how, how do you feel about the current solutions that are in the market? And what was amazing was the first eight questions, the data was completely worthless and, and not meaningful, but the free response answers to those last two questions um, were so incredibly powerful and just that the, the pain that was in all of these, all of these people's kind of just responses. It was things like, you know, web spam is what makes me believe in the death penalty and <laughs> that Guantanamo is too good for them. And I mean, you're, you're just reading this going like, whoa. And so, and, and I remember Michelle was like, she got the responses back first and was reviewing them. And she was like, this could be a real business. And so we were on those responses. We, you know, were able to rate, I mean, our, our first pitch deck was basically just pull quotes from, from um, all of these, all of these different um, people who had responded to the survey. And um, you mean like pitch deck to venture capitalists? Yeah. Pitch deck to venture yeah. capitalists, um, you know, which, which was, was uh, you know, call it nine months later, we were, we um, were pitching venture capitalists and, and the whole thing was just take those quotes and that, like, it was, is there a real need here? And you know, it was like, hear people's actual words saying it. And so, you know, when we got started, um, we really leaned on, on that community and we did it, we did it in a bunch of ways that the, I think the best story around that was we needed to get hardware to build the prototype and we didn't have a lot of money and, uh, we hadn't raised any, any venture capital. And, and, you know, I'd made the mistake at my last company of putting everything on credit cards and, and just seeing how, how that, that creates, creates problems for people over time. And, uh, and Michelle said, because you keep talking about how passionate the Project Honeypot community is, why don't we just ask them if they have any extra hardware? And Michelle, or excuse me, Lee and I were, were like, that's the dumbest idea we've ever heard. That's not going to work. And, and she's like, let's just try it. Let's see what happens. And we, we had just through a, a you know, accident when people signed up for Project Honeypot, we'd ask them to record their postal code. And we were we were based in the Bay Area, and so we looked up everyone's uh, postal code that was within a hundred miles of San Francisco, and we sent them all emails. And we said, "Hey, we're the team that created Project Honeypot. Um, I know this is a weird request, but we're working on a new project. We need some servers. If you have any, would you be willing to donate them?" And it was incredible. We got something like a sixty percent response rate, which is you know unheard of in you know random unsolicited email, and. Everyone was like, hey, I don't have something, but my neighbor down the street has a couple of old servers and, and I can get him to donate them to you. And so Michelle had this beat up uh, Volkswagen Jetta and she she literally drove around um, to all the people who had equipment and picked it up and threw it in her trunk. And along the way, everywhere she went, um, she sort of described what we were thinking of building and get feedback uh, from, from those, from those, uh, from those people who were, who were being so kind, um, to us. And it turned out it, we, we were able, none of the servers worked, um, although we were able to sort of scavenge parts to build sort of two Franken servers. And one of my biggest regrets at Cloudflare is that we didn't save 
those, those two servers somewhere got thrown out along the way, but, um, but that was, that was where we built the, the original, uh, prototype was on those two machines. <laughs> yeah. I could imagine, you know, having the Franken server on a pedestal somewhere in your <laughs> big yeah, headquarters. Like the original, it's like the original, you know, Google, the original Google server things. And, so, and somehow we just, we, we, you know, you never, you never think these things are going to be things until, until they are. And so you don't have, right. the, like you don't, you never take enough pictures you never, you never write down enough things. It's, and so, and you forget a lot of the, of the journey, which is, which is too bad. But in this case, you know, I think the servers were valuable, but what was really valuable was the relationships, the very one-on-one relationships that Michelle um, largely built with, with all of these, all these people. And, and so that handful of, you know, Bay area um, residents became kind of our very first, um, beta, beta users. I remember the first 10 people that signed up, we broke, we broke their websites in like a myriad number of ways. <laughs> the patience they had, um, they're like, Hey, we t- I tried it. It broke everything. Um, here's what I think's going wrong. Let me know if you fix it and I'll, I'll be happy to give it a try again. And I think because project honeypot had been this you know, community service effort. We never ask anything of the community. We delivered value without, you know, ever really capturing anything. Um, and because I think, you know, we were very human and it was, and very, you know, engaged and, and with that, with that community, um, I, I think actually getting customers um, has, has, has almost never been um, the challenge we've had. And in two, we started in 2010, really building the first prototype, signed up the first customers in, in call it March, when we hit 100 customers in July, we took the entire team, which was six people at the time, to to Vegas for a retreat, um, and you know went dune buggying and 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 had fun. Got back, we got up to about a thousand customers using the service um, by September, and then we launched um, at TechCrunch Disrupt on uh, September 27th of 2010, and you know overnight, you know it just thousands of people uh, signed up, and it and it really hasn't hasn't slowed down since. What's the current statistic in terms of what percentage of the U.S.'s or world's uh, websites you protect? Um, so, 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 I mean, lots of external people um, track this. So, according to a company called um, W3Techs, which which surveys this, um, it's about fifteen, just shy of fifteen percent of the web um, sits behind our network, and we and we add. Uh, somewhere between 0.8 and 1.2 percent of the web every quarter. Um, that's been the sort of historical trend over the over the last several quarters. And so, you know, the the responsibility behind that is 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 pretty significant. And you know, it's it's amazing when we do something well. Like I, I remember incredibly clearly in 2014 when we made encryption free uh, for all of our customers, and we literally doubled the size of the encrypted web in an afternoon. And, and that was, that was great. Um, the, the, the corollary to the sort of negative corollary to that is, is also true that when we, when we screw up, um, it, it, it causes, you know, significant disruption. Uh, and, and I think our team understands that responsibility and, and takes it really seriously. When we come back, I'll talk to Matthew about transparency and election integrity, but first a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. 
no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. One of the things that you've become known for as an entrepreneur is your transparency. You mentioned earlier that you you write frequently, you communicate well, um, and you've had a ton of tough decisions to make over the years. Um, we're going to talk about some of those, but first I just wanted to talk with you about your thinking behind when to open up as a leader about what you're going through. One instance that might be interesting is um, I know Cloudflare has stopped a couple of the world's biggest uh, DDoS attacks, um, but there was one that it didn't stop, and, and in that instance, you chose to, to write about it and to talk about it. Can you tell me about that and what goes on in your head when you make that decision? Like, hey, we've just been through a rough thing, but let's let's tell everyone about it. Yeah, I don't remember which what what attack we um, we didn't we didn't stop. Although early, early, it's interesting. Early in Cloudflare's history, today a lot of people know us as like a DDoS and and DDoS is like a, a distributed denial of service attack. So it's about sending a whole bunch of traffic to uh to a website or to someone's infrastructure yeah it's just like the really classic common way that a website crashes right yeah and so we and and early on and you can actually go back and search in in comment boards and other things we were we were like we're not a ddos mitigation service because we were terrified uh, of them and it was tough we had to figure out how to solve that problem in order to survive as a business but i but i do think there are there are lots of examples um over the years of of why, you know, I think we've learned the lesson of that transparency is important. I, I think that if I was to kind of go back to where that really originated, I think early on, we would talk a lot about how we were in the trust business, because fundamentally what we ask people to do is route all of their traffic through our network, where we, you know, inspect it and and try to stop the bad guys and let the good guys through. and. You got to trust us a lot in order to do that. I remember early, early on, I think it was in 2012. Um, uh, there was a, a kid uh, who who lived in Long Beach, California, um, who went by the hacker name Cosmo the God, and he was 15 years old. And unbeknownst to me, uh, he had bought my social security number off of a Russian website, um, which had stolen it from Wells Fargo, where once upon a time I, I had a student loan or, or, or something. And, and he used that to then convince AT&T to redirect my, who's my cell phone provider at the time, uh, to redirect my cell phone voicemail to, an in, uh, to a voicemail box that he controlled. He then um, initiated on my personal Gmail account a, a account recovery uh, process that allowed him to get into my personal uh, Gmail account. My personal Gmail account was the account that was used to set up the original Cloudflare email account, which is also uses Google's, um, uh, what at the time was called G Suite. And there was a zero day vulnerability in G Suite that allowed uh, him to uh, bypass all the passwords, um, bypass all the two-factor authentication and everything that we had on, on the corporate email account uh, in order to get get access to it. He then was able to get into one of our um, system administrator accounts uh, and then was able to redirect uh, a, a website that used us uh, to, to another website. Um, and, you know, he could have redirected the Central Bank of Brazil or the FBI or a number of, you know, very high profile websites because he was a sort of hacker kid. Um, he, he instead redirected the sort of online forum 4chan uh, and he pointed it to his personal uh, Twitter account. He then also, 
He then also <laughs> published a bunch of somewhat embarrassing emails from my personal email account on, on a website that he controlled. And then just to, to really um, aggravate me, uh, put that website behind Cloudflare. The entire thing was incredibly embarrassing. And, um, and to be honest, at the time, we were small enough that if we had just said, yeah, there was a, there was a problem and you know, we, we fixed it and no comment, everyone would have forgotten about it. And to be totally honest, that was, that was entirely my instinct. I wanted to hide under a rug somewhere. And a bunch of the rest of our team said, Matthew, you, you always say that we're in the trust business. Like, how is anyone going to trust us if we don't explain what went wrong? And I growled and grumbled about it for a little bit. And, and eventually it was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. And so we pulled, there's a guy named Kevin, uh, who was our, our graphic designer. And he was, he was doing something for a new product. And we pulled him off and we said, we need you to put together an infographic of all the stupid mistakes that we made. And we need to put it up on our blog and, and send it out. To, to anyone who asks, and it needs to be done the next hour. And, and he did, and it, was, and it was incredibly embarrassing. And I, and I remember going to our trust and safety team and saying, okay, now you pull down, pull down the content on that, on that website. And, and our team said, listen, we have a process and we're in the trust business. And so we're gonna follow that process. And I said, yes, but it's my personal information up on the website. And they're like, doesn't matter that you're the CEO, we have a process and we're going to follow the process. Wow. And, and I think everyone was right um, in doing that. And we held our breath. We thought, gosh, this could be the end of the company. And what happened instead was the next day signups were up, you know, 10X. And I think that that was a really good lesson for us to learn early on when we, when we didn't have substantial revenue and we didn't have big customers and, and we, and we didn't have, all of those things. And I think that that has given us that experience. And then unfortunately in, in every company you make mistakes in most companies, you don't hear about them at Cloudflare. We incessantly blog about them and tell people say, okay, we got it. You made a mistake. Shut up now. But I think if you are in a business where trust is paramount, transparency and, and radical transparency is the best way. And, and, and maybe the only way that you can earn that. Yeah. And now that you're a public company and now that you're 10 years old, happy birthday, by the way, um, <laughs> will that continue? Um, you're, you're obviously talking about it now, but um, have, have you been continuing um, and will that continue? Being a public company, it limits some things. It limits your ability to you know, share information with some people, but not other people. It limits like how you can released either good or bad news in, in, in controlled ways. But, you know, the purpose of most all of, you know, the, the um, SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission rules is actually how do you foster as much fairness and transparency in the market as possible. And so, and so actually I think it's, it hasn't, it hasn't been, that hard for us to continue to, to be, you know, a radically transparent organization. And so I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you an example that's an internal example. So we, you know, the, the, the board at any company feels like this, I mean, it feels like, you know, the, the, the wizard in the wizard of Oz, it feels like this great unknowable thing that's out there. 
And but it's just a guy behind a curtain, right? It is. It's just <laughs> people, and they put their pants on the same at the same time. And in a lot of cases, they they know less about the underlying mechanics of how the business works than most most employees. But they have a you know a real wisdom from the experience that they've seen in other places, and they and they hold you accountable, and it's a and they're, they're good for governance, and I think they play a very important role. But it is, you know, for the average rank and file employee, it seems like, oh, it's the, you know, the board is coming over for lunch and it's, you know, what, what does that mean? And so to try to demystify it early on, we started a practice that at every all hands um, after a board meeting, we would run through all the board slides and talk about what we talked about. And, and you know, there were some, you know, there's some sensitive things that, that we would have to exclude usually around things like comp, but Otherwise, all the strategy and how the business is going and all those things, we wanted to be just as transparent internally as, as we could. And I remember um, right before we announced that we had filed to go public, um, I did one of these presentations and in, a, in one of the internal chat rooms, someone said, oh, you know, I, I really thought we were going to go public, but if Matthew just did one of those presentations, it must mean we're not, you know, anytime soon. And um, and then I think everyone was surprised um, that that a few weeks later we announced that we'd actually filed to go public. And and then after we went public, everyone's surprised that we have continued to do the presentations. And so the only thing that has changed is we used to do the presentations immediately after the board meeting, um, but now our employees are also shareholders, and so we can't give um, you know confidential information out to them earlier than we give it out to any other uh, market participants. And so um, we, so now our practice is we have a board meeting on one week. A week later, we do our earnings uh, release and our earnings call. And then at the first all hands meeting after that, we run through all the board slides. And and, and again, I, I think that that the amount that actually has to change as a public company um, is is relatively small. And and actually, in a lot of ways, you you are if you are not a transparent company. Um, you have to go through a lot more pain and change now as a public company than you than you would if if you were just transparent from the beginning. That's fascinating. Um, real quick, was it you who told me that you had practiced your earnings calls for some many months before going public? Years. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about this election season that we have just been through. In in a post on your site, you wrote that you know one of the bedrocks of a democracy is that people need to get be able to get access to relevant information to make a choice about the future. Um, you know, information about candidates, learning how to register, how to vote. Have you noted, I know you've been tracking all this, have you noted um, any patterns in cyber attacks uh, affecting these resources leading up to um, the election? You know, we, we, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I, we'd never really thought of, of Cloudflare as, as something that campaigns would use or, or anything else um, when, we were, when we were first starting. But you know, starting all the way back in, in 2012, I remember being surprised how many political campaigns would sign up. And, and, it, and it makes sense now in retrospect, you know, we, we designed Cloudflare really for startups originally uh, and made it super easy to sign up. And then, and then we would sort of grow um, with them. And a campaign is a lot like a startup um, where you don't know if it's gonna be successful or not. You have really constrained resources and, and you need to kind of punch above your weight. Um, and, if you're, and if you're successful, it's, it's sort of chaos, you know, till the very end, till the, till the election. And so um, we've had, I think, a pretty unique view into elections, both in the U.S. and and abroad. You know, we were both of the Mexican in the last Mexican presidential election. Both candidates were, were Cloudflare customers. We see you know elections all all around the world. 
Um, and, and so, you know, over that time, we've kind of tracked it and it, and it sort of been a, a kind of in the back of our mind interest. And, and it, the, the general story um, up, up until 2016 was in most of the rest of the world, cyber attacks were a big part of elections. And you would see, um, you know, very significant attempts to attack or knock offline or hack uh, various campaigns. Um, and also other election infrastructure, whether that's where you went to register to vote or figure out where your polling place was or or see the, see the official results. And cyber attacks were a big part of it. And, and for most of time, what had been interesting was in the US, um, cyber attacks just weren't part of what you saw as part of an election. And then, and then it changed in 2016. And in 2016, you know, I think there's been a lot of publicity about, um, you know, the misinformation campaigns and other things, but, but on the part, and we don't, we don't see that, but the, but, but the cyber attacks and hacking directed at campaigns and not just, not just the presidential campaigns, but other, other campaigns down, down ticket. Um, and, and then also at the elections infrastructure um, was really substantial. And it's, it's really interesting to think about how us elections infrastructure works. Um, it's this massively distributed system where basically every county can set up their own process on how they administer an election. And, um, and that works really, really well to deal with what were sort of the electoral um, challenges and attacks, you know, from, uh, you know circa 1700 through, <laughs> through 2010. Um, because what you were worried about there is a corrupt central authority uh, changing the votes. Um, and so by distributing it and making it, it a highly distributed system, that works really well. The downside and what we saw in 2016 was that the weakness that that then creates is that you can have, you know, an incredibly well-resourced, you know, nation state, in some cases, the GRU out of, out of Russia, um, attacking, you know, the individual, you know, election administrator out of Polk County. And, and those aren't fair odds um, between that. And, and the people, um, the people who I've gotten to know a handful of, of people that, you know, administer elections now and, and, and they, some that are in red states and some that are in blue states and some that are in purple states. And the thing that's been, you know, just completely consistent across all of them is just how really noble what they do is and how seriously uh, they take their job in the sanctity of, of it and how important that is. And so, you know, when we saw what happened in 2016 and we saw where other technology companies, platforms were being used to subvert the democratic process, we, we really had a kind of a moment where we we're like, we need to do something about this. And we'd always had, you know, what kind of uh, programs to help um, largely focused overseas um, at uh, you know, nonprofit and civil society organizations to help them, you know, deal with the cyber attacks that they dealt with. But what we realized in 2016 was that we needed to do work, um, you know, in our, in our own backyard. And, and Cloudflare couldn't have had the success it had if we, if we didn't exist in a place that has a relatively functional, relatively stable government. And so, you know, we, we thought it was our duty to help protect that. And so we launched, um, we immediately launched something called the Athenian Project, uh, which allow, which said we will provide our full range of services, the things that we you know, charge companies millions of dollars for, we'll provide that for free 
to any state or local election uh, officials. Um, and then it took us a little bit longer, um, but we worked um, with uh, Defending Digital Democracy, um, who worked with the Federal Elections Commission to say that cyber attacks were such a significant threat that so long as it was provided equally in a nonpartisan way, uh, that companies like Cloudflare, and, and Cloudflare has done this in Microsoft and Google and, and a handful of others, um, that we could provide our services to campaigns um, at no cost and it wouldn't violate uh, federal elections um, uh, rules. And, and that, that really, that, that just got cleared earlier, earlier this year. And so as a result, um, you know, we have, um, you know, both, the we had both the presidential uh, uh, campaigns as customers, we had a huge number of Senate and congressional races as customers. But you know, what I'm, I'm really proud of is that 28 of the 50 US states were using Cloudflare uh, in order to make sure that their election infrastructure uh, was able to, to handle um, all of the various parts of, of the election. And we don't see everything. So we don't see, you know, email. Uh, we don't see, you know, SMS messages that might be targeting um, uh, voters to try and suppress them. We don't see ads posted on social network sites, but we do see traffic to things like voter registration sites, uh, sites that figure out where you're, what you're, where you're pulling uh, places that report the official results. Um, campaign sites, and what I'm optimistic about uh, for 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 this election, um, as well as for the future, is that while 2016 was was really scary and the attacks were were were, were very significant, uh, in in 2020 um, we haven't seen anything that that we think has that we think interfered with any voter's ability to get information about the candidates, uh, to register to vote, uh, and, and to actually be able to find their polling place and cast their vote. And, and I think it's really incumbent on us to be very transparent about um, what it is we see. And so starting in, um, in, in early uh, October, we released a campaign uh, traffic tracking site, which we didn't break down by state or by party or by anything else, but we just said, if you look at the overall infrastructure that is necessary to run a, a effective election, is it healthy? And, and what we saw was um, that in 2020, the answer was, was yes, uh, uh, from, again, from the perspective that we're able to see, um, and, and also that the, that the interest in this election was, was you know, really unprecedented. Yeah, that's so it's so fascinating. I've been reading that, you know, there was there's we anticipated far more kind of foreign uh, election interference than we've seen so far. Is that that's you're echoing that from from again, we, we see we see some things we don't see everything. Uh, sure. And so there, you know, you're if, not you're not monitoring the robo texts. Yeah, I wish you could. Maybe, <laughs> maybe six months from now, we find out that that, you know, that that there was something out there that somebody hacked into something. But for the for the corner of the universe that we see, and and I think it's a representative corner, um, you know, again across uh, battleground states and non-battleground states, across blue and red states, um, across Democrat and Republican candidates. From from what we can see, it does not appear that there is a systematic effort to um, subvert the, uh, the the there there was not a systematic effort to subvert. Uh, the election for, uh, in any of the internet facing properties that, that we have that we have visibility into. And, and that's 
you know, that is a much happier story than I feared. Um, you know, I, I, I would, I would be talking about as, as in the, in, in, in the, both the days running up to and, and the time after, after the election. Yeah, that's great. I was just looking at your the election tracker, um, which is really neat. Um, and I can see there was a little spike of um, what looks like attacks on government election websites, like right maybe the night before election day. Um, what do you think that that was? Yeah, you know there there was, um, and 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 um, and even a couple of weeks back, there was actually a fairly large attack against um, against one um, particular candidate, but the. I, I would I would qualify it as saying that um, while there are always cyber attacks uh, online, um, these during the the 2020 election, the attacks that we have seen have been relatively small in size. They've been relatively unsophisticated in in nature, and there and there has been nothing that that leads us to believe that they are uh, in, in any way sort of nation state sponsored. And so the challenge with sh- challenge with you know. Cyber attacks. It's 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 funny. One of the the times you see a spike in 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 cyber attacks um, it, under normal circumstances um, tends to happen uh, often in in sort of early June and then in um, in sort of late December. And you think, what's well, yeah, going school on? School breaks. <laughs> and it's kids like yes, kids getting out, <laughs> screwing around, and they launch cyber attacks. So you don't need to be you know, the, 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 the Iranian national guard in order to, in order to, to launch a, a fairly basic cyber attack. I think the difference is the level of sophistication. And so, um, y- yes, there has been some background noise and I'm sure there's some, you know, 15 year old kid, uh, who's, who's sitting in, you know, in, in, in a basement somewhere thinking, oh, here's how I'm going to be famous is you're knocking some voter registration site offline. Um, but, but, but again, that's, that 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 it that pales in comparison to to again what we saw in in both 2016 actually 2018 as well uh, and um, and in and in elections that are outside the United States um, what's become fairly commonplace. Yeah, I wonder if you guys ever get a real vacation. I mean, I uh, when I wrote the book about Reddit, it became clear that the the craziest stuff online happens like late summer or over Thanksgiving break or like you said, winter break. Um, do you ever get time with your family? Yeah, I mean, I so we have a great team, um, and and so um, knowing that it was going to be a busy sort of end of October and beginning of November, um, uh, you know, I, I took I took a week off and was able, and it was actually able to, to unplug, um, pretty well. What was interesting for me though, is it was like that. I think the sort of COVID blues, um, which I mean, I, I, is one of those things that I think every human on the planet at some point has, has experienced over the last, over the last eight or nine months. It, it actually hit me a lot more when I, when I wasn't working then when I sort of stopped and kind of reflected that, you know, it's, it's not easy to go out to dinner and you can't see your friends and, you know, there's, and, and we, we still are very much, you know, locked down. And, and, and I, and I, again, I think it came back to, um, you know, recognizing that it's when, when what you're doing at, in your job feels like it's making a real difference. And when you can't imagine that there's anything, uh, that, that you could be doing that you would, that would be more meaningful, that's when work doesn't feel like work. And so um, I, I actually, and, and this is, I, I usually am pretty good at taking vacations, but you know, in this particular time, uh, I, I was, I was actually really excited uh, to come back to work and, 
and yeah, there, there are challenges ahead, but you know, we, we helped make sure that the election was free and fair. Um, we, we helped ensure that the, the internet continued to function when people needed it more than ever. And that makes it easy to get out of bed each morning. Thank you so much, Matthew, for, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. After talking to Matthew, it's clear he's always been interested in leading transparently, something so many executives today either aspire to or talk a big game about. But Matthew actually had a hard journey to true openness. It took having to go through a painful attack and having employees teach him that he needed to publicly fess up. Since then, he's become comfortable with this idea of being radically transparent. It's not something many entrepreneurs are able to fully commit to, but Matthew has learned how to execute on it. He's candid about the good times, the growth, the money, and the times when the company has truly stumbled. He's even open right in the middle of his messy thought processes. And for any business based on trust, he's right. Honesty is the best policy even when it hurts a little. That's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. If you're a new listener... Welcome. Please subscribe to What I Know wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a friend who's interested in startups, entrepreneurship, or evolving as a leader, do send them some links to your favorite episodes. Also, it's truly helpful if you could leave us some stars and a review on Apple Podcasts. Have your friend do it too. It takes two seconds and helps other people who'd love this podcast find us. You can also drop us a note anytime at whatiknowatinc.com. Who's an entrepreneur you admire whose story you'd love to hear? You can also let me know directly on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer, who DDoS love editing out all my stumbles, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.